Hello and welcome. I'm David Beard, contributing editor for Daily Coast Elections. And I'm David Neer, political director of Daily Coast. The Down Ballot is a weekly podcast dedicated to the many elections that take place below the presidency, from Senate to City Council. You'd be doing us a huge favor if you subscribe to The Down Ballot on Apple Podcasts. Just open the app on your phone or computer and type in The Down Ballot, and you'll find us right there. You can also find The Down Ballot on every other platform where you listen to podcasts. Just type in dailycoast.com slash The Down Ballot. So we've got a ton to cover this week. Big primary night on Tuesday. So what are we going to be talking about today? We have so much to talk about, so many races to recap. We are going to be discussing the primaries for Senate and governor in Pennsylvania, for Senate in North Carolina, a whole bunch of House races in a variety of different states, including, of course, Pennsylvania and North Carolina, but also Oregon as well. And we are going to be chatting about many of these races with one of our very favorite people, a longtime Daily Coast Elections fan and booster, and a fantastic political strategist and radio host, Joe Sudbay. So let's get this show on the road. We had a huge primary night on Tuesday in a whole number of states with some very exciting races that have a lot of meaning for November. And we will be talking about all of the big ones on today's show, but we are saving several of the juiciest contests to talk about with our guest on today's episode, Joe Sudbay. So we wanted to discuss a few others that we may not have time to get to with Joe in our weekly hits. One of the states leading the docket on Tuesday night was North Carolina. David Beard is a native of North Carolina, so I think he's contractually obligated to talk about the state in every single episode. What have you got for us? Well, the the most disappointing thing is that there aren't any notable runoffs now in North Carolina because of North Carolina's low 30% runoff rate. So we won't get a second chance to talk about North Carolina primary later in the summer. So we're just left with this week. And there were a ton of competitive races this week. The Senate race being obviously the the most prominent, where Representative Ted Budd on the Republican side easily defeated former Governor Pat McCrory, about 59% to 25%. So this was not ended up being a close race at all. And so Budd will face former state Supreme Court Chief Justice Sherry Beasley in November. Beasley narrowly, narrowly lost re-election in 2020 by about 400 votes in a, in a you know awful close competitive race there. So she is primed to to go forward and, and take on Bud there. She had very nominal primary competition and, and won in a in a huge landslide. The the most notable thing because it was pretty obvious that that Bud was going to to take this for for a pretty good while now is the sort of hopefully final final demise of, of Pat McCrory, former governor, as I said, who is most notable nationwide for having passed the bathroom bill that was this anti-trans legislation and losing in, in 2016, at least in part because of that to now North Carolina 
Governor Roy Cooper. And McCrory on election night was a real sad sack about everything. He, in his farewell speech, was sort of like, and I quote, now I have to do some real self-evaluation of where I belong. He was upset about the lack of a sense of civility, a sense of character. And he, he seemed to think that it was so unfair that in 2016, everyone caricatured him as a right-winger because he passed this super anti-trans bill. And then now, because the party is now super Trumpist and he's not really tight with Trump, he's mad that the Republicans are now, you know, caricaturing him in his view as somebody who's not sufficiently conservative enough. So largely, you know, it's just a bunch of whining. He talked about how he was called a Republican in name only during the primary. He didn't endorse Bud for the general election. He seemed to waffle that. I wouldn't be surprised if he doesn't come around in the next few days or weeks to, to endorsing Bud, but he was clearly in no mood to do so on Tuesday night. So really a character I will not miss at all on the front stage of North Carolina politics. One thing I would note, you know, you mentioned Trump. Trump was a huge backer of Bud and Bud's other patron is the far-right anti-tax group, the Club for Growth. And they spent many millions on his behalf. And as our Daily Coast Elections colleague Jeff Singer likes to point out, when the Club for Growth and Donald Trump take the same side in a primary, that person stands a really strong chance of winning. It's in these other races where the club and Trump have been on opposite sides, for instance, in the Ohio Senate race, where things get a whole lot messier. But when they are united like this truly horrible Voltron with only two Voltron parts, then they're fairly unstoppable. See, I go back to Captain Planet. That's what I watched when I was a kid. It's like with our powers combined, it's some sort of evil version of Captain Planet where they combine their Trump and Club for Growth powers and then they're unstoppable. But Voltron's a good one too. There are a few other races, uh, congressional races in North Carolina we wanted to cover. North Carolina 11, of course, is the one I'm sure everyone's waiting to hear about. We're going to talk about that with Joe a little later on. But there were a couple other big races in North Carolina. First off, North Carolina 13, which is sort of a, because of its large reconfiguration from the previous maps, didn't really have an incumbent. And both sides had a competitive primary on the Democratic side. State Senator Wiley Nickel defeated former State Senator Sam Searcy, 52% to 23%, so a pretty strong showing there. On the Republican side, there were a ton of candidates. And the one who sort of squeaked it out at 32%, which is just above North Carolina's 30% barrier to avoid a runoff, was former North Carolina State football player Bo Hines. And this is a little bit like, you know, Madison Cawthorn in North Carolina 11, sort of a junior version of that. Bo Hines, no real political experience, just came out and decided he wanted to run for Congress got Trump's endorsement in part thanks to Cawthorn, and then just sort of started district hopping because the maps kept changing, started off in the much more Western district in the state. And then when it came up that this was the district that was sort of open and, and competitive to Republican leaning, he just sort of dived in over here instead. But And so Hines is going to advance to the to the general election without any sort of runoff and really without any sort of like 
good reason other than Donald Trump endorsed him and it was a bit of a clown car of a primary. And hopefully that'll benefit Nickel, who, who he faces in the general election. It's a very, very competitive seat, probably the most competitive seat in North Carolina. It takes in sort of the southern Raleigh suburbs to points south. And so that will be a, a very close race to watch as we move to November. The last district I wanted to talk about in North Carolina is the first district where G.K. Butterfield is retiring. Democrat, longtime you know, incumbent in that seat. On the Democratic side, State Senator Don Davis defeated former State Senator Erica Smith, 63-31. Davis is a lot more moderate of the two. He had some not great votes on abortion. He had in the state legislature. And Smith really ran more as the progressive candidate. But unfortunately, you know, a lot of money was spent on Davis's behalf and it ended up being not particularly close in the end. On the GOP side, accountant and 2020 nominee who lost to Butterfield by, I think, about eight or nine points. Sandy Smith defeated Rocky Mount Mayor Sandy Roberson, 31 to 27. Again, just very narrowly getting over that 30% mark to avoid a runoff. Now, Sandy Smith has a lot of controversies in her past, which was not helpful, obviously, in 2020 and is looking to come back and bite her again in 2022. She's been accused of spousal abuse and other various controversies that we'll see litigated, I'm sure, a lot in the lead up to November. The Congressional Leadership Fund, which is the main House GOP super PAC, it's very closely tied to GOP leaders in the House, including Kevin McCarthy. They came in at the last minute to try to stop Sandy Smith with a pretty big ad buy, which suggests that they know that she is real trouble for them. But this is now the second cycle in a row where CLF has come in to try to thwart a candidacy of an unacceptable Republican candidate and failed. They tried to block Jim Oberweiss in Illinois in 2020, and he won the GOP primary there in a critical race and then lost the general election. So Republicans really did not have a good night in terms of picking their maybe least objectionable candidates shall we say, and we'll be discussing Pennsylvania with Joe Sedbay in a little bit on that front as well. Flipping over to the other coast, there is another incumbent who is right now on track to lose. That is Blue Dog Democrat Kurt Schrader in Oregon's redrawn 5th Congressional District. He is trailing right now progressive attorney Jamie McLeod Skinner. As of Wednesday evening, when we were recording this episode, Schrader was down 6139 with around 40,000 votes counted. However, a very large number of votes remain untallied in what is more or less its own base of Clackamas County. And those ballots are going to be slow to be counted. There was an error with printing the barcode. So that's really slowed things down. However, the back of the envelope consensus is that Schrader has way too much ground to make up and that McLeod Skinner is going to be the likely winner. Uh, if she is 
either way, this is a somewhat competitive district. It leans blue. It got a little bit bluer, in fact, in redistricting, thanks to Democrats. But the real news will be replacing a moderate like Schrader with a much more progressive alternative. You know, there's a lot of things we could say about Schrader uh, last year when Democrats were really speaking out in one voice about the importance of impeaching Donald Trump because of his leadership, of his coup and insurrection and attack on the Capitol. Schrader at one point decided to dissent on this and likened the idea of impeaching Donald Trump to a, quote, lynching. And he had to apologize for that. But really, it just kind of shows you where his head's at. But more substantively, last year, he voted against a bill that would lower prescription drug prices. Democrats, progressives have often attacked him as being in the pocket of the big pharmaceutical industry. That was just really an unacceptable vote. It really helped derail this bill. And lowering prescription drug prices is something that Democrats of all stripes, they're able to talk about. They want to run on this. This really unites moderates and progressives. Joe Biden's on board. And Schrader is a pain in the ass. And he has caused problems like this again and again. If he loses, well, you know what? As long as Democrats hold his seat, and there's every reason to think that McLeod Skinner can, this will be a huge upgrade for the caucus. Absolutely. And this is another example of how redistricting years are a little different than all other years, because normally, you know, Schrader, a longtime incumbent, would know every, you know, the whole district he's represented before. In this case, because Oregon got an additional district, there had to be some changes pretty much everywhere in the state. And the district stretches sort of from just south of Portland down to Bend. And the Bend area is very fast growing. It's not in Schrader's old district, but it's in an area where McLeod Skinner had run before. And so she had a base there and that vote went very heavily for her. So you really see how it's a combination of Schrader being out of step with the district and redistricting, bringing in new voters who are willing to take a fresh look and be like, hey, this guy isn't isn't who we want to be representing us in Congress. So you can see how that happens in a redistricting year that wouldn't happen in, say, like a 2018 or, or a 2014 or something like that. And there's other Oregon districts. Oregon 6 is another district that we're going to talk about with Joe a little later, as well as I mentioned the Pennsylvania statewide. So stay tuned for all of that. But there's one more district I wanted to talk about here in the weekly hits before we moved on, and that's Pennsylvania 12. Pennsylvania 12 is a Pittsburgh-based district where longtime Democratic incumbent Mike Doyle is retiring. And in that one, State Representative Summer Lee very, very narrowly leads Steve Irwin, who's the former chief of the Pennsylvania Securities Commission. It's right now 41.7 to 41.3, so just razor thin, and there's sort of an unknown number of votes outstanding. A small number of Allegheny County precincts were not reported and will probably not be reported until early next week. So we're probably going to have to wait a few days to find out the final result there. But this was a race that, that drew a ton of investment on both sides. A number of you know more conservative to moderate groups backed Irwin, while a number of progressive groups backed Lee. A ton of money was spent on this race. And the way that the ballots came in is Irwin took a very big lead early on election night, as he did very well with the mail, the mail ballots and the early ballots. And Lee did very well with the election day voters, particularly in Pittsburgh, and just clawed back and clawed back and clawed back. And at the very end, took this very narrow lead, which 
you know, it looks like I think she's probably the slight favorite to hold on, but we really we really won't know for a few days. But really one of the the most hard fought primaries we've seen on the Democratic side so far this year. And I should add, this is a safely Democratic seat. It would have voted for Joe Biden by about 20 points. And whoever does win the primary on the Democratic side is going to be facing off against Mike Doyle. Yeah, the Republicans somehow found a candidate who happens to have the same name as the retiring longtime Democratic incumbent. As far as we know, there is no relation. And before anyone gets too concerned, you know, the people always I've seen people freak out about things like that. Could some voters somewhere out there be like, oh, Mike Doyle and vote for the Republican? Sure. Is this going to change anything on the margin where it was it's going to affect the general election? Absolutely not. So let's just all take our amusement and, and not get worried about that. We have much, much more to come on Tuesday's primaries and other goings on in the world of down ballot politics, which we will talk about with our guest, Democratic strategist Joe Sudbay. We're going to take a short break, so stick with us. Joining us today, I am so excited for this guest. It is political strategist Joe Sudbay, who is host of the Sirius XM radio show, State of the States. I have also been a guest many times when Joe has hosted for Michelangelo Signorelli on Sirius XM Progress, and we love to nerd out about elections Joe is very much in the style of myself and my co-host David Beard in terms of just being a huge nerd about down-ballot elections. So this is going to be a little bit of a role reversal. Usually I go on Joe's show and he quizzes me about elections that have recently taken place. But this time I'm going to put Joe on the hot seat. And of course, on Tuesday, we just had by far the biggest primary night of the year, including in some absolute must-watch states with some enormously important races. So let's start at the very tippy top of the prominent race list. And that's going to be in Pennsylvania for the Senate contest. So Joe, why don't you fill us in on what happened there and what we still don't know. Sure. So obviously, um, in both uh, the gubernatorial and Senate races, there are open seats. On the Democratic side, Josh Shapiro, the attorney general, he ran unopposed. He's the Democratic nominee. For governor on the Republican side, they have elected, they have nominated one of the craziest, most extreme politicians that we have seen in a very, very long time. He's basically a Christian ideologist, nationalist. I mean, Doug Mastriano was at the January 6th event. He is really Trumpier than Trump, which, you know, that's kind of getting out there. But this guy, I tell you, one of the ways I knew Republicans were freaking out, and I know, I know, in the traditional media, they would never say Republicans in disarray because that kind of language is never. Uh, they can only use that language for Democrats. That's not but, allowed. That's not allowed. But if you are ever going to talk about Republicans in disarray, the uh, Pennsylvania gubernatorial race is a shining example. Things get so bad 
two things happened. A lot of Republican donors said if Mastriano wins, they're going to support Shapiro. The other thing that happened is there was this frenzied effort to try and maybe back Lou Barletta, who used to be a member of Congress. Before that, he was the mayor of Hazleton, one of the most extreme anti-immigrant politicians around. Well, I mean, just normal now for the Republican Party, but he used to be extreme in the GOP. He lost the Senate race by about 13 or 14 points in 2018. That's how desperate they were that they decided maybe Lou Barletta would be their savior. So they've got Mastriano now. He gave on Tuesday evening, like, a really, really badger crazy acceptance speech. Look for some clips. You don't want to watch the whole thing, but look up for some clips and you'll just get a good sense of it. On the Senate race, we still don't know who the GOP nominee is. And it, there's just such a, something so delicious about it because Trump's guy, Dr. Oz, was up by a smidge. The... Uh, Republican, uh, other Republican, the big, the other Republican, not from Pennsylvania, who ran, like Oz wasn't from Pennsylvania, but ran. Uh, David McCormick uh, was telling people on election night, "Don't worry, we're going to get the mail-in ballots." Now, I think a lot of your listeners will remember that in 2020, a certain <laughs> presidential candidate at the time, president, made a big deal about the fact that mail-in ballots were coming in and how that how corrupt that whole thing was. So the question is, does McCormick overtake Oz with mail-in ballots? And what's the fallout here? So the other thing that happened is Kathy Barnett, everyone thought, which, I mean, she's Mastriano level extreme. She kind of faltered. faltered. She only got 25% of the vote, around 25% of the vote. There was some belief that she might have sucked away some votes from Oz, who, as we all know, Trump endorsed. So, yeah, it remains to be seen. Uh, John Fetterman won on the Democratic side, a commanding, commanding win, 60% of the vote. I thought that was fascinating because, I mean, if you ask the D.C. professional Democrats who is their ideal kind of candidate, they would present to you someone like Connor Lamb, a congressman from Western Pennsylvania. And um, so they were, you know, they were, they were all geared up that Connor Lamb was going to soar in because he was, on paper, the right candidate. The voters of Pennsylvania did not think so at all. And John Fetterman got around 60% of the vote. So really shapes up to be a very important year. I think one thing to remember about the gubernatorial race is that the governor has the power to appoint uh, the secretary of state. That person will be in charge of elections. And Mastriano wants to rig the election. So not only is it an important election for Pennsylvania, it's an important election for 2024's presidential race. That's a really good point about appointing the secretary of state. Mastriano, the first time I ever heard about him was right after the 2020 election. He went to a meeting with Trump at the White House, part of the months-long gambit to try to overturn the election results. But the most remarkable thing that happened was that Mastriano found out that he was COVID positive while he was meeting with Trump. How, how do you let that happen? It was completely nuts. And also, it was super weird. His own son and his son's friend were also at the meeting with Trump. It was just... Very, very bizarre kind of uh, small-time stuff. But the dude is also a, a QAnon adherent. He really checks all the boxes. He's really maybe like a Marjorie Taylor Green type. But you know, I say this almost every week on this show. 
we have to be careful about what we wish for. Definitely Shapiro's job has gotten easier by the fact that the GOP nominated an absolute lunatic like this. But at the same time, the risks just went up because this is going to be a tough year and Pennsylvania is a swing state and Mastriano can win. There's no question about it. It's not like he's going to lose 70-30. No matter how well Shapiro does, it's not going to be some you know enormous, enormous blowout. So yeah, there is a real chance of, of his victory. And that's why we have to fight as hard as hell to make sure that doesn't happen. Absolutely right. And, uh, you know, um, I think anything can happen. I mean, look, we still all bear the scars from 1994, 2010, 2014, in what were bad democratic years. Now, we really, we believe, you know, that if you follow trends, that's what will happen. You know, there are some amazing factors, important factors that could kind of change that dynamic. I mean, I think the fact that we had a coup and the fact that, you know, we know about the Roe decision, hopefully those that will motivate Democratic voters, because seriously, our democracy, which was founded in Pennsylvania, in Philadelphia, could be undermined in Pennsylvania if Mastriano wins. And one thing I'll note, although I know we have a ton we want to get to, is it might help that this is a governor's race. We've seen even throughout the, the Trump era, if you will, that there still retains some more flexibility among voters who may be very strictly adherent to their partisanship when it comes to congressional races, Senate races, presidency, you know, when they're thinking in a very DC oriented way. That in governor's races, we have seen more flexibility. You know, Laura Kelly won in Kansas in 2018, which was obviously a good year for Democrats, but it was still Kansas. So, you know, that's helped particularly, obviously, when Republicans nominate really bad candidates like Mastriano is, that that could help even if it is, you know, a bad year, like we worry that it might be, that Shapiro could still overcome that because he is a much better candidate. And, you know, middle of the road, quote unquote, Pennsylvania voters are going to be willing to vote for him, even if they really want to send Republicans to D.C. for for whatever reason. Really, That's really important. I think that's right. That's really right. So another race we saved to, to talk with Joe about is North Carolina's 11th district Republican primary. Wait, did where, something happen there? I know, I know. It's gotten a strange amount of coverage for this, you know, minor congressional primary. You've heard about it apparently all across the world. People know about Madison Cawthorn now because of the various and sundries controversies he's gotten himself into. But... He lost his primary in an attempt to run for his first re-election to state Senator Chuck Edwards, who very narrowly defeated him. So, you know, tell us tell us your thoughts about Madison and all of the glorious things we've gotten to learn about him in the past few months. Well, I think one of the things we learned is you can be as extreme as you as possible in the Republican Party. You can support the replacement theory. You can talk about invasions. You can do anything. But do not say that Republicans in D.C. do coke or go to orgies because the entire hierarchy of the Republican Party will turn on you. (laughs) We really did see that happen to Cawthorn. And he still came pretty close. I mean, you know, in the low 30s, but still I I found I found the way, you know, it was interesting because every time there was a new revelation, and there were numerous revelations over the past few weeks about him. He would tweet, the libs are trying to destroy me. Uh, no, dude, it was the Republicans that were trying to destroy you and the Republicans that did. Now, what I would really like to see is for Madison Cawthorn 
to maybe start an OnlyFans page or something like that where he can really dig oh, into Joe. <laughs> really can dig into the um the orgy factor in the GOP. I mean, you know, he's been there have a lot of videos that show he likes to show off. So it might be a job for him. I don't know. Wow, I did not realize we were going to head in this direction. <laughs> I didn't really. I'm sorry, it just happened so quickly. I just thought of it. It was. I did see a lot of that he doesn't have a lot of like work experience because he became right. a congressman so young. It's actually interesting. Also, the fact that again he's so young, he's got forty or fifty years to make a comeback. So who knows what happens when we've got a fifty-year-old Madison Cawthorn running for something twenty-five years down the road? Yeah, it's. Um... It's 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 a it's a long sorted uh, future for him, and we will all um, suffer for it. I, I do um, think what was in, uh, in North Carolina, Sherry Beasley. I'm really high on her. Can I know North Carolina is a tough state. She's now the Senate Democratic nominee. Will be running against Ted Budd. Um, we know it's going to be a tough year. North Carolina is always a, a tough state, but. Uh, I, re- I really have a, a lot of respect for Sherry Beasley. She lost the Supreme Court by 400 votes in 2020. So I, I you know, I know North Carolina has broken our hearts many times, but they have elected Democrats in the past. And I do really believe there's a lot of on the ground organizing um, that's happening. Uh, I got to talk to Ricky Hurtado, who's a state rep last year, just about the work that they were doing, realizing that they couldn't count on outside money to save them. They needed to save themselves. So I'm, I'm kind of excited about that one. As, as listeners know, and, and you may know, I'm from North Carolina. I bring up North Carolina all the time. So I'm very glad to hear that you've got some optimism for that race. Yeah, well, I, I, it might be misplaced optimism, but, you know, she's, she's a terrific candidate. And Ted Budd is a Trump nominee. And, you know, he's kind of extreme. And we'll see what happens. I mean, it's going to be a rough year anyways, as we've discussed. But I think, it, you know, it, if we can get out, if young people will vote and people of color will show up, who knows what could happen? You know, a friend of mine said to me last night that they wish that Madison Cawthorn had lost for being a Nazi instead of just for embarrassing Republicans. <laughs> but we'll take what we can get, I think. Right. And you can't lose for being a Nazi or an, look, we, look what they uh, nominated for their governor in um, Pennsylvania, Mastriano, QAnon, uh, who wanted to steal the election is determined to steal the election. In many ways, you get rewarded for that kind of behavior and the GOP. So we're going to switch gears and flip over to the far side of the country. This is a race that we have talked about at length Oregon, thanks to population growth, won a new House seat in reapportionment. Democrats there created the blue-leaning 6th Congressional District, a brand new open seat. And Democrats unexpectedly had a completely bonkers, out of control, and I will say obscene primary that really should never have happened. But, But the good news is the good guys won. So what went down? Oh, my God. The the amount of money that was spent in this race by, I call him a crypto bro, who had a super PAC to elect a kind of a, I'm just going to call him sort of a no-name Democrat. And also, the other thing that really struck me in this one, I mean, like the, the crypto bro 
super PAC is spending money in a bunch of places. And like you said, fortunately, Andrea Salinas won. She will be the first Latina to represent Oregon. But the other thing that happened was the House Majority PAC decided to invest in this race against her. Well, for the other Democrat, which I know I keep not mentioning his name, but I am just so amazed that this was the race they choose they chose to get into, and it really pissed off the House con- the C- Congressional Caucus, the Democratic Congressional Caucus, because they were spending money to defeat a woman who could be a, a, she's a great Democrat, she's been a state rep, she worked for Harry Reid, and it's like where did that strategy come from? I just don't get it. I don't get that amount of spending. I mean, the the crypto bro spending, you know, we don't have any control over that. But what was it that prompted, I still don't understand, the House Majority Pact to invest in this race? I know you've had um, people from House Majority on the show, but it just, it, this one just, this one, this, it was kind of mind boggling to watch the money, but I'm glad Salinas won. That was the outcome we, we wanted, but it was just kind of, it was just bizarre to watch. It was totally bizarre. And I want to be clear that our, our guest from HMP came on before we learned about right. their decision right. to put a million dollars in this race. You know, there is no clear answer. There has been a lot of speculation that HMP made that investment because Sam Bankman Fried, who is the crypto billionaire. He actually runs a quote-unquote exchange for cryptocurrency that Sam Bankman-Fried had possibly offered to give a donation to HMP in exchange for them getting involved on behalf of his favored candidate. We won't know uh, until Friday at the soonest, which is when the next financial reports are due for super PACs like that. But it will cast a cloud over this race no matter what. And you know, as you were alluding, Salinas, she'll be, if she wins in November, the first Latina to represent the state in Congress. And she had heavy support from the Congressional Hispanic Caucus, which has in the past also been a huge supporter of House Majority PAC. They've given the group something like $6 million over the years. So to divide groups that are normally on the same side, especially since, as we have said in the past, that HMP has never played in a, in a Democratic primary like this before. Uh, it truly made no sense. And, you know, the total spending for Carrick Flynn, that's the candidate who was backed by all this crypto money, uh, he might get around 15,000 votes in the end, let's say. Uh, the, the, the totals aren't known yet and won't be for a little while. They probably spent about $15 million on him, which means that he spent a thousand dollars a vote that's completely ludicrous but i thought that was a a a great outcome because hopefully these schmucks learn a lesson or two and don't try to pull this kind of bs especially since right now salinas is doubling up flynn she's leading uh, 38 19 this is as of wednesday afternoon when we're recording this show so i hope we don't see this kind of thing happen again i'm not optimistic but this is a pretty humiliating outcome for the $15 million gang. Yeah, absolutely right. The other race I've been following pretty closely in Oregon is the 5th District. And as of now, uh, Jamie McLeod Skinner is pretty 
He has a pretty good lead over incumbent Kurt Schrader, who was one of the unbreakable nine, one of the people who were willing to undermine Joe Biden's presidency um, in the House. He did. I think he voted against the rescue plan. He uh, was always threatening to. He was one of the people that helped undermine um, Build Back Better and very wealthy. And he is go- looks like he's going to lose. And, and you know what? I say good riddance. Good riddance. He was very, very close to the pharma industry. And guess what? People don't appreciate when, when, when you get to point out that your own member of Congress is undermining your ability to get cheaper drugs in a Democratic primary. It doesn't really help you. And um, Jamie McLeod Skinner, uh, hopefully she'll pull it out. Uh, she's terrific. And um, so that uh, and she 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 will be part of the uh, LGBTQ equality caucus. So I, I I especially appreciate that. Yeah, I think the thing that, that connects both of these races is the proof that like money is not the be all and end all, particularly in primary races. And that's not to say that money isn't really important. All else things being equal, usually the person with more money is going to win. But often everything isn't equal. And what we saw here you know, particularly, you know, in Oregon 5, was more of a ideological, you know, Schrader was outside the median, sort of the norm of, you know, the the Democratic Party in that area. Also had some new voters because of redistricting. But, you know, those things combined were more important than the fact that he had more money. And, you know, in Oregon 6, like Salinas was at a huge, huge money disadvantage, but she had, you know, backing from a lot of like, what we call establishment, but we mean like, you know, the Hispanic caucus, the you know, labor groups, things like that, of people who supported her because they had relationships with her. And that's the type of establishment we're talking about versus a billionaire. And those kinds of sport being known in the community, being a state rep, is going to oftentimes be more important than spending $11 million on advertising when you don't have anything to back it up. If there was some compelling reason that Carrick Flynn needed to be in Congress that people cared about, because there was all this talk about like effective altruism and like pandemic preparedness, and those things are fine, but they're not what everyday voters care about. So, you know, going in and Selena's talking about like, here's what I've done, here's what I care about, and understanding that's what voters are going to care about versus just like $11 million, that's not going to get you anywhere. And we saw that, you know, proven in, in a good way. It really was in a good way, too. And um, I think the same thing is true about um, Salinas and uh, Jamie McLeod Skinner is that they both knew their communities pretty well and had been active in their communities. And and, and look, when you're running for Congress in, in a primary, that really matters. And, and, and there was an authenticity to both of them that I think uh, really, really mattered, too. I think, uh, you know, they weren't they weren't. I always say that what happens too often is that you meet these great candidates and then they go through this high pressure car wash in the DC among some of the DC uh, consultants and they come out on the other side speaking in you know talking points in pablum and, and voters get that so in a way, in a way if if you're not the chosen one of kind of the big money you can Keep your authenticity because you don't have to go through that car wash. You can stay who you are. And I think voters have really good bullshit detectors for the most part. I think we have some pretty good bullshit detectors on this show, too, because we're going to talk about some serious bullshit that went down, not in the primaries, but in New York, where the court appointed expert who is drawing a new congressional map released a new map 
earlier this week, it made radical changes to the existing map. It was very different from the map that was struck down. And right after the map dropped, the chair of the Democratic Congressional Campaign Committee, the DCCC, this is the group that is tasked with protecting and expanding the Democrats' majority in the House, Democratic Congressman Sean Patrick Maloney, he announced that instead of running in the district where three quarters of his constituents currently live, he would run one district to the south where only a quarter of his constituents live and where three quarters of the constituents are represented by a progressive black freshman, Mondaire Jones. What the hell is Sean Patrick Maloney thinking? I think Sean Patrick Maloney thinks about Sean Patrick Maloney first and foremost and only. And that sounds kind of harsh, but that's just who he has been. As you mentioned, he chairs the DCCC, which should be solely focused on expanding the Democrats' margin this year. And instead, he put himself first. I saw a tweet today from Jake Sherman, who does Punchbowl News, which I refer to as one of the DC, I mean, the Capitol Hill gossip publications. But he said, Sean Maloney allies are spreading the message that Jones would be ideologically better suited for another district. So Richie Torres, another member of Congress from New York, retweeted that and said, the thinly veiled racism here is profoundly disappointing. A black man is ideologically ill-suited to represent a Westchester County district that he represents presently and won decisively in 2020. Outrageous. Now, the other amazing thing about this is Sean Patrick Maloney, Richie Torres, and Mondaire um, Jones are all uh, gay. So it just kind of, you know, it's one of these things that you're like, you know, dude, help out your fellow members, but I, I, I'm appalled by Sean Pat. I, I will tell you, in 2015, there was a vote pushed by Republicans. That was when they controlled the House. Uh, it was when Trump's campaign was really getting rolling, and they were attacking Syrian refugees. And the House took a vote, and a number of Democrats sided with the Republicans on this. And, you know, if you know the story of refugees, you know, there are so many LGBTQ refugees that come to this country to for their to save their lives. And three members of the House Equality Caucus that, that, that represent, you know, that's LGBT members, Jared Polis, Kirsten Sinema, of course, and Sean Patrick Maloney voted with the Republicans. And it was one of, I thought that was one of the most appalling votes I had seen to that point. But that vote told me everything I needed to about Sean Patrick Maloney. And uh, I've, it's, I've never seen anything to change my view. You know, there's a couple of other impacts here of this really selfish move by Maloney. First off, and this one is in a way the most important to me, is that by abandoning New York's 18th congressional district, instead wanting to run in the 17th, he's making it more likely that we'll lose the 18th. And that's completely unforgivable. But just as unforgivable is he wants Mondaire Jones to run in the 16th district. Well, that district is also represented by a first-term progressive black man, Jamal Bowman. So Maloney is trying to both risk 
a vulnerable seat, the 18th, and reduce rep- representation among Black progressive men by pushing them into a primary against one another. It's really a double whammy of BS. Now, I want to caution, Monder Jones hasn't said what he's going to do yet. Right. The map could still change. We're not expecting a final version from the court until Friday. But this is completely unacceptable all the way around. And what, what's really amazing, you know, you quoted that tweet from Richie Torres, Mondaire Jones also publicly attacked Sean Maloney. And for these freshman members to go on the record after a top member of Democratic leadership, that's really, really remarkable. And we've even seen some reporting that there is talk of almost uh, a, a, a rebellion to try to depose Maloney as chair of the DTREP. Well, and uh, all of the criticism is warranted. In the in the scenario later, so important. I, I want I want to point out one other thing that's really important. The reason we're in this situation is because of the New York. It's a court of appeals, right? It's the Supreme Court, but it's really the court of appeals. The way that New York legal system is set up, it was really kind of a conservative appointee, someone who progressives did not want appointed, but kind of got pushed through. To, that was the deciding vote. And I think it just reminds us how important state Supreme Court justices are. And when you have power, when you control a legislative body, don't cave in, don't compromise. And it, it's just, we live with the ramifications of this all the time. And in some states, Supreme Court justices are elected in some places that's worked to our advantage, like Pennsylvania with some of the redistricting. But we really need to understand just the the interrelationship between justices, judges, and and how districts are decided. And this was that this played out like this, I kind of feel like it's Andrew Cuomo's revenge. That's exactly right, because the high court is uh, filled with Cuomo appointees, some of whom are very conservative, especially in criminal justice in particular, despite having been appointed by a nominal Democrat, despite being approved by a Democratic legislature. uh, This really has to change. And fortunately, there's a mandatory retirement age in the New York judicial system. Hopefully, Kathy Hochul will win re-election and appoint some much better, more progressive and more fair-minded judges to our top court, because once again, this is total BS. And the thing that really gets me around Maloney, to go back to him for a second, is that Jones and Torres should not have been put in the position where they had to come out and publicly go against the chairman of the DCCC. If Sean Patrick Maloney wants to look out first and foremost for Sean Patrick Maloney, that's fine. There are plenty of congressmen and congresswomen who are like that, who are like, I'm here to be elected and to stay elected, and that's what I care about. And if that's what he wants to do, that's fine. If you want to be in the leadership of the House Democratic Caucus, which you are as the DCCC chair, that means taking responsibility for more than just yourself. Then being like, I'm not here just because I want to be a congressman. I want to be here because I want to see Democrats win a majority. I want to see Democrats enact change. And the way to do that, as Sharon Patrick Maloney, is to take responsibility, to take on this 18th district that is actually marginally better than his current district. And win that race like he wanted in 2020 and let, you know, Jones run in the in the seat that makes the most sense for him, where most of his constituents already are and so on and so forth. So the just complete abdication of leadership, the complete, you know, I'm going to look out for me and these freshman members, you know, 
just trying to claim the fact that because Jones doesn't technically live in the new district, he's slightly into the 16th district, means that like, oh, I was just running in the obvious district for me. What I don't know what's going on with you. Like, you're the D-trip <laughs> chair. What do you mean you don't right. know the broader situation? It's just like so unbelievably callous that it's it's unbelievable. Yeah, it really is. And the other thing that's been really annoying about it, too, is I mentioned the leak to Jake Sherman at Punchbowl, but they've been leaking a lot. I think um, David Neer tweeted about this, that, you know, you're seeing the same anonymous quotes appearing in different articles. They are using their position as chair of the DCCC to malign other members of the caucus. Now, if you're someone who's not Mondaire Jones and you're running for re-election in a tough re-election, how comfortable do you feel that Sean Patrick Maloney has your back? I wouldn't feel too good about it. If you're one of the candidates running around the country trying to challenge a Republican incumbent or for an open seat, how comfortable does that make you feel? And the other thing that really pisses me off the most is that in doing this, Sean Patrick Maloney plays into this, plays into what the DC media loves more, gossip about Democrats in disarray. And it didn't have to happen. And he it instigated a lot of it, he and his team. And I just think it's beyond appalling. Well, you'll get no argument from us here. We have been talking with one of our all-time favorites, Democratic strategist Joe Sudbay, who is the host of the show State of the States on Sirius XM Progress. You can find that on channel 127. Joe, please let our listeners know how and where else they can find you. Uh, mostly on Twitter, at Joe Sudbay. That's where I do most of my ranting when I'm not on the radio or doing podcasts. I really appreciate it. Thank you both so much for this invitation. So I'm at Joe Sudbay on Twitter. And then, like you said, I, I do State of the States. And then I, I frequently guest host on SiriusXM Progress, which is a lot of fun because they pay me to talk for three hours. And as you can tell, I can talk. <laughs> <laughs> well, so can we. Thanks again, Joe. That's all from us this week. Thanks to Joe Sudbay for joining us. The Down Ballot comes out every Thursday, everywhere you listen to podcasts. You can reach us by email at thedownballot at dailycoast.com. If you haven't already, please like and subscribe to The Down Ballot and leave us a five-star rating and review. Thanks to our producer, Kara Zalaya, and editor, Tim Einenkalt. We'll be back next week with a new episode. 